If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to turn uh, to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 is where we'll be this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And the title of today's sermon is called Winning Advice. And I almost um, picked a picture of Dennis just to put up there, Winning Advice, just as a play on words. But I want you to think about what advice you can remember being given in your life. There's different times where people give you advice, and sometimes it's very substantial things, advice to or not to buy a house. You know, that's why you get a home inspection. It's like, hey, my advice is that you want to get these things fixed if you want to buy this house, or maybe you need to run. Um, I, I know when I was younger, sometimes it's, it seems less consequential advice, but it, it means a lot, right? We had we go to uh, Florida every year for spring break for baseball. My dad was the coach, and, and we would always tend to get a uh, hermit crab. And one of the things my parents would always tell me is, don't put your finger between their claws. And, you know, as, as a young kid, of course, what I was going to do was put my finger between their claws. It can't hurt that bad. And, of course, it did hurt that bad. So we should usually listen to advice. You want to listen when you have good advice. So we're coming to this point in this letter where Paul has talked about a lot of the issues, what's going on in his life, what's going on in their life. He's encouraged them. He's told them what things they need to focus on. And now he's getting to a point where he's just really kind of, hey, here's all the things I haven't fit in yet. I'm going to put a bunch of important advice that you need to listen to into this next passage. So we're going to start with that in verse 1 of chapter 4 through verse 9. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and, and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Eudoia and urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, I also ask you, true, you true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we continue this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this time we can come together and just to look at your word. And God, I pray that as we spend these moments together, that we would lay all other things aside, everything that may distract us, every worry, every care that this world may try to throw at us. Lord, I pray that we can lay it aside and simply focus on your word for the next few moments that we have together. God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see in this passage, Paul is, is finishing his previous statement, right? Reaching forward to God's goal, which we talked about last week. So then, my dearly loved and long for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crowd, in, th in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So he's telling them, hey, because of this, stand firm. Keep pressing on toward the goal. And then he goes on to share some advice that he has with the church in Philippi. Now, I want you to consider this. The first thing we see is that we need to get along with each other. The first thing we see is we, as Christian brothers and sisters, we need to get along with each other. And I want to 
have you put yourself in, in these two women's place? How would you like it if your name was enshrined in Scripture as being in an argument and the Apostle Paul is telling you, you guys need to get over it? He says, I urge Eudoia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. The first thing we see are two people, two women, that it says, who are not getting along with each other. Paul addresses them directly in this letter, urging them to agree in the Lord. So what does this mean? It means they need to lay down their thoughts and opinions and focus on their common bond in the Lord. I, I, well, my best friend growing up, there will be a picture of us on the screen. Like, we literally, from the time we were born, were able to be best friends. But my, my parents moved into their house. They still live in, like, three days before I was born. They already lived there. They bought the land from Caleb's parents. And so we lived there our entire lives together, had land all around. We got to do all kinds of things together. And when we were about, I'm telling you, we had to have been four, four or five. We were very, very young. We got into an argument. Um, I don't remember what it was about. But we were standing about halfway between my house and his house. And, and what we said, and I looked at him because I'd heard it on TV somewhere. And I said to him, I don't even know who you are anymore. Okay, so as, as a four-year-old, I looked at him and said, I don't even know who you are anymore. So I, I stormed back home. He goes back to his house. Now, of course, both our dads coached football. So we both ended up at football practice that day. And we hugged it out. And we were like, why would we get mad at each other? We're just going to make up anyway. And so from that point in my life, very formative thing, that's kind of how I try to approach things, and that's how we always did in our relationship. We get frustrated, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter, we're just going to be friends anyway, right? We're going to get over it, let's not let this dwell on this. And this is really, in a, in, a, in a similar way, what Paul is telling these two women. Hey, agree in the Lord. When we're going to be in eternity with each other, doesn't it seem a little silly to hold on to the grudges we have on this earth? We're just going to live together in eternity. We're just going to continue to be Christian brothers and sisters. We're going to continue going to the same church together. We're going to continue to be in the same family with one another. Doesn't it seem a little silly to hold on to things that have been done? Now notice what Paul has said here. He doesn't address the intricacies of this dispute. Only that he tells them that they should agree in the Lord. So here's, here's the thing. When we get into disputes, when we have arguments... We always have the supernatural ability to understand and to know without a doubt why we are right, right? When you have a problem, when someone's done something to you, when you disagree with someone, you know without a doubt in your mind that you are right and that they are in the wrong and you can't believe that this is even a problem because you're right. Paul doesn't go into this matter. Now, we don't know the situation. We don't know what they're mad about. We don't know who did what to who. That doesn't seem to matter to Paul. What matters is that both of them lay aside whatever they think they have, whatever ground, whatever holding they have, and agree with one another in the Lord. And so what can we learn from this if we're caught up in a dispute with another believer? We ought to do what we can do to reconcile. Romans 12, 16-18 says this, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't repay evil, anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The command that, that God gives us through this, these scriptures is that if we are in an argument, if we are in a dispute, if there is any dispute between us and other people, we should do what we can to reconcile that relationship. Now, sometimes that means you're, you're coming to them and you're saying, hey, 
this is the issue, we need to deal with this, I want to do this. I want to lay aside what I've done, I, want, I acknowledge what I've done in this situation, and I want to come to an agreement. And there's going to be times where this is not possible. There are people that will not reconcile with you. That's not what this is telling you to do. This is not telling you to go above and beyond what you're able to do. It's not possible. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And there may be times where reconciliation doesn't occur, but that should not be because of you and your efforts. So we see also in this passage, not just that these two women need to agree and lay aside their disputes, but that the church needs to come alongside them and to help them. When there comes a time when you're confronted with an argument from people that you know, you have two options. If there's a fire, a dispute, uh, imagine it like a fire. If you have a, a fire of an argument, you have two options. You can pour gasoline on that fire, or you can pour water on that fire. If someone comes to you and, can you believe what so-and-so did to me, what they said about me, what, fill in the blank. You pour gasoline, well, I can't believe that. They're just awful. I can't believe they'd say that. That's pouring gasoline onto this fire and, 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 and helping to burn within them this resentment they've already fostered. To pour, to pour water on that fire would be to, to, to encourage them to do what the Bible does. What does the Bible say we do? If you have a problem with anyone, you go to who? To that person. And so you hear someone saying something. You hear someone that's complaining to you, talking to, to you about someone. Well, have you talked to them about this yet? That's how you diffuse, you don't add to it, and you encourage them to do what they should do to reconcile, to be made right with one another. So as people in the church, maybe you don't have issues with anyone right now, but if you encounter a situation, if you encounter problems that people are having, our job is to be peacemakers, to promote the unity of the body, to help people to come alongside, to love one another, to forgive one another. And this promotion of unity is compounded when Paul calls us to be happy and to be kind. And it's a very, well, I'm oversimplifying all this advice, if you haven't noticed that yet. Be happy, be kind. Verse 4 emphatically tells us that we should rejoice in the Lord. And it, it's reminiscent of, of what we see in Psalm 9, 1 through 2. I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing your name most high. So he says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So why do we rejoice? What does it mean to rejoice? It's to celebrate. To celebrate what God has done. To celebrate what he has done in your life. To celebrate these things. So why do we rejoice? Because of all that God has done and all that God is going to do. We rejoice because of the salvation that we have in Christ. We rejoice because of the blessings that we have. Every good thing we have is from above. Every good blessing we have comes from God. And so we should rejoice as we count those blessings. And we rejoice in another day of life, of being able to come together this morning and to worship. We rejoice today. When we think of all that God has done, we should gladly rejoice in Him. We must also remember that this is coming off of the verses that are talking about conflict among Christians. And we will see this as we get through this whole passage. There's a theme here. Instead of doing the negative, bad, sinful, wrong thing, do the better thing. So instead of bickering and having fighting within the body, what should the body do? Rejoice. They should agree in the Lord and they should rejoice. Instead of fighting with one another, they should rejoice in the Lord. So we're going to see this idea, this instead of doing this negative thing, this thing that is, is dragging you down, that's worldly, 
do the better thing. Instead of fighting with one another, we should rejoice in the Lord. And then we see that because of what has been done for us, we move to verse 5, because of what has been done for us in the life we now have, we should be kind and gracious to all the people that we meet. So verse 4 talks about rejoicing. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. And, and I don't think graciousness is one of the words that as we get into Scripture is one of the words that really trips us up. But when I looked a little further into this word, it's the, the Greek word epiikos. Epiikos. And, and, and its definition makes it even clearer what we're supposed to do in Christians. Not insisting on every right of letter, of law, or custom. Yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, and tolerant. So when we think of this word, to let your graciousness be known to all, what does that mean? To be gracious is to not insist on our own thoughts or rights when confronted with the situation where we might want to insist on our own thoughts and rights. I want to give you a, another story. I had a, one of my best friend's older brother, he would drive us around a lot before we could drive, and we went to a youth pool party, and, and this guy really loved his car. Okay. He had a car. Every time I was in it, it was immaculate. Shampooed the cars. Always had about 10 air fresheners hanging from the thing. It, he always kept it clean, always kept it washed. And I mean, it was just like an Impala. It wasn't like it was like a really fancy car, but it, it, he kept it clean. He loved it. Loved that car. We're at this pool party, and one of my other friends decides he's going to uh, do like a, a Dukes of Hazard and slide across the hood. It was not a small guy. He did not slide across the hood. Big dent right in the hood. Okay, now, and here is where this evidence comes into proof, because this guy that I was friends with, was my friend's older brother, he admittedly, a couple months before that, would have gotten really angry about that. Would he have had the right to? I would say so. He, this guy was doing something a little reckless and messed up his property. But what he said was, he, he's like, you know what? It's just a car. Means, our relationship means more than this car does, right? So that's graciousness. When someone does something to you, when someone does something that gets in your way, that inconveniences you, and you let it go. Maybe you have the right to stand up to it. It's when you're in a, a parking lot at the store, and, and the, the, the car next door is full of a bunch of kids, and they open the door and slam right into yours. Ooh. You probably have the right to, to challenge them and to make them pay for that. But what does graciousness do? Well, it's okay. I understand. I've been there, too. Graciousness is laying down what we want, what we have a right to, what we have the, the inclination, the, the right to do for the good of others, to love others. Christians ought to set the example as we love others. And, and we've mentioned this before, and you've probably heard this before, that, that oftentimes one of the hardest times that, that waitresses deal with is Sunday after church. Why is that? Because people aren't gracious. Christians should be the most gracious when we have difficulty with any sort of thing that we come into contact with. Graciousness. Let our graciousness be known to all. Why? Because the Lord is near. Because we know that none of these things that inconvenience us, none of these things that matter to us so much right now are going to matter in eternity. So we ought to set the example for people that we encounter in the world. And this graciousness should point people to who God is because of how we're living. But because the Lord is near, as we move on to verse 6, we need to worry less and pray more. 
We need to worry less and pray more. And, and as I said, this passage is full, fill, filled with verses that you could have an entire sermon on. We are, we are driving through these, but I want us to see that we need to worry less and pray more. Because the Lord is near, don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we remember that the Lord is near. We're supposed to rejoice, let our graciousness to be known, and do not worry. And in verse 6, we, we see this common problem that we all worry. Everybody worries. It's a natural reaction, right? When you see someone, a child maybe running toward a road that there's busy traffic on, you're going to have this instinctual reaction of nerves and worry and anxiety. That's normal. God has given us that so that we will avoid doing something that's going to hurt us, right? We would go and, and that should prompt you to actually see a child running into a street, you go and you get them. The anxiety that our body created produced us to go do something. But what about the worry that there isn't an immediate action for? What about the worry about all of the things in life that we just deal with? Worry can be paralyzing. When we worry about unknown things or things that we cannot change, it makes us ineffective in our walk with God. When we worry about the people that are making decisions that we can't change. We worry about the, the money that doesn't quite seem to be there in the way we need it to. We worry about health concerns that we have no control over. It can paralyze us and weigh us down. And if we look around, there is so much to worry about. Paul's admonition here is not to worry. We should live... He doesn't say, don't worry about these things. He just says not to worry. We should not live lives that are riddled with worry, even things that it might make sense to be worried about. So what does he do? In, what does he say to do? He said, don't worry, which I, I know that sometimes can seem like the most unhelpful advice, right? Like, I, I know that we've had to tell that to men over and over again as husbands when your wife is concerned about something, be like, hey, just calm down. That's not the right answer. But that's not what Paul says here. He doesn't just say, hey, don't worry. He says, don't worry, but... In everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So instead of worrying, he gives you the response. If you are worried, don't. Instead, present your request to God. We take things to God through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So let's break down what this looks like in our day-to-day -day life. Think of something that worries you. Today, as you sit in here, every person in here has something that they are carrying with them that might be worrying them or that has the potential to worry them. Think about what that is, financial troubles, health problems, whatever it may be for you. The command we have is to not worry about it, to take it to God through prayer and petition. That means that we're seeking the Lord. We're going to Him with our request. We also see with thanksgiving. I think one of the important things we remember here is that when we thank God for all that He has done in our lives, it almost becomes like, hey, what, what was I worried about again? You're the one that's done all of these things that has saved me, that has delivered me from all of these past problems. You've done amazing things. You've, you've split the seas. You've, you've done everything. Everything obeys you. What am I worried about again? So with thanksgiving, we, we frame our request with thanksgiving, and then we go to him. It says through prayer and petition. I want to challenge you that we should not pray passive-aggressively. So what that means and people, it's a very easy thing to do, and sometimes we do it because we don't want to be a burden. But it's passive aggressions when you just kind of like hint at things. You know, hey, you know, it'd be really nice if this wasn't going on. It'd be really nice if I could just figure this out. But no, be direct. 
but reverent. When you go to God in prayer, when you go to Him to ask Him to do something you need Him to do, then when you feel like there's something that you need to happen, go to Him directly, clearly, ask Him what you need. I'm going to tell you, do not be afraid to ask God for something. He's your Father. Don't be afraid that it's too much. Don't be afraid. Th think about Abraham praying to, or petitioning God on behalf of Sodom. Sodom. He, you know, Lot lived in Sodom, and, and so he said, Hey, God, God are you going to destroy Sodom if there's 50 people there? He said, Okay, if there's 50 righteous people, I won't. What about 45? Okay, there's 45. Oh, 40. If there's 40, I won't. 30. 20. 10. He asked God what he wanted from God. He asked God to, to spare it so that his, his, his relative would not die, would not perish. He didn't beat around the bush, and he asked him clearly. So when we don't need to hint at God of what we're asking. We don't need to think it's too much. We don't need to think that we're burdening him. But we need to always ask him, but always be in submission to who he is. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. We take all that we have to God. Why? Because he cares about you. If you're a Christian today, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so that you could be made right for, with him, that you could have this relationship that was broken, that you broke, Christ died while you were a sinner so that you could be made right with him. He loves you. And because he loved you, he died so that he could save you. Jesus died so he could save you. And so now as believers, we should have the confidence that God cares about us. God loves us. And there's nothing too little or too big that we can take to him, that we can lay before him. Because the reality is that, is that prayer and worry don't go together. If you are praying about something, you're giving it to God, the worry's not going to be there. If you're worried about something, it's, it's most likely you're not praying about it, right? We know that song, take it to the Lord in prayer, right? All the burdens that are you weary, heavy laden, take it to the Lord in care. All these burdens that we carry, all because we don't take it to the Lord in prayer. We need to seek God, take everything we have to him. And a key aspect of this is knowing and trusting that he cares about who you are, about you and what you face. And then from this, we see that peace is a direct result of taking all our worries to God in prayer. So verse, says, says, verse 6 says to take them to the Lord in God in prayer. And 7 says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that is promised here, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And why are we able to have such peace? We have rekindled our trust in the God who can do all things. Because if we are worrying about something, whether we want to admit it or not, that means that there is a level of trust in God that is, is lacking at that moment. Because we see what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot says, worry is the antithesis of trust. You, can, you simply cannot do both. They are mutually exclusive. When we trust God, we trust who He is, that He is working all things for the good of those who love Him. When we see that there is nothing that He can't do, the worry flees, and all that is left is to trust. And when we have ceased our worry, when we've placed our trust in God, His supernatural peace guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. There are many things to worry about in this life. 
They are overwhelming and scary and make life difficult if we focus on them. But they shouldn't control us. I want to read to you Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is bigger than anything we might face. And any pain, any turmoil, any sickness, any danger, any worry that we have is temporary. And they have no power of separating us from the love of God. And this love that we have is in eternity. We will realize our reward. This goal that we talked about last week that we were pursuing, we will realize it, and nothing can take that from us. So when we trust God, we will have peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. You've no doubt seen in your life families of people that have gone through hard, terrible things. Christian families that have gone through hard, terrible things. And through this, they seem to have a peace that doesn't make sense. Do you know why they have that peace? It's because the God of peace has given them the peace that it surpasses all understanding. And when we trust God, we take everything to Him in prayer. We don't worry about our inability. We don't worry about what others might do to us or say about us or any other thing that can happen. And we trust Him. We have peace knowing that whatever we face... At the end of the day, God is there, God is with us, and he loves us. And no one, no thing can change that. And in order to cultivate and to protect this peace, this this attitude, this mindset we should have, you need to think about what you think about. You need to think about what you think about. The world around us is so negative and filled with constant negativity. I want you to think about for a moment, what you've consumed in the past week. The news, music, TV, social media, how much of that was positive, beneficial, spirit-filled stuff? How much of it was full of things that would give you anxiety and worry? How much of it was the potential for world war, the potential for more harm and destruction and and things that have happened that are difficult to deal with. It's what we consume. It seems like all you have to do is scroll one time and you'll see a story on Facebook about something tragic and terrible that's happened. And, And we should be aware of these things. We should know about them. We should pray for these people. We should seek to minister in any way we can. But if all that we consume is negative and things are going to to challenge us in, 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 in this way that transforms us into focusing on bad and negative and, and pits us against other people, that's not good. 
What does Paul tell us we should think about on the other side? Whatever is true, opposed to what is false. There are a lot of things you are bombarded with on a daily basis, even from what would purport to be trustworthy sources that are false, that are pushing negativity and lies into your life. Whatever is true, think about these things. Whatever is honorable, as opposed to what is dishonorable. The reality is, if we look at the movies, the TV, a lot of the things that that we consume in this life, even the, the more clean ones, is it honorable or is it dishonorable? We should be thinking about what is honorable, whatever is just as opposed to what is unjust. This is where we have to, to really evaluate when we come into contact with circumstances in our life, what is just, what is the right thing that should happen as opposed to what is unjust. Whatever is pure, as opposed to what is filthy. Again, the same thing. What are you filling your mind with? What are you filling your, your time and your days with? Whatever is lovely as opposed to what is disgusting. Whatever is commendable as opposed to what is deplorable. Is, if there is any moral excellence opposed to any moral depravity, if there is anything praiseworthy as opposed to that deserving scorn, dwell on these things. You see, I, I think one of the problems that we face is that most often what we dwell on is not these things. Everything that's around us, everything that's informing us, everything that is pushing its way into our lives is not these things that Paul is telling us to dwell on. It's the turmoil, it's the, the obscene, it's all of these things that, we, even if it's wanting to, even if it's not to consume these obscene things, it's to, to be repulsed by them. But I don't even think that we should be engaging with it. Paul says to dwell on these good things. It's a, this is a state of being, a state of being consumed with thinking about these good things. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful, through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I want to challenge you that if you are thinking of things, if things are coming into your mind, that is where we have to stop things. If we don't want to live a life that's sinful, we don't want to live a life that has sin or that is is arguing with people or constantly battling against others that has all this negativity and worry and anxiety, what are you thinking about? What are you allowing your, your thoughts to be consumed with? What are you allowing your mind to be consumed with? Because if it's not the things of God, these things that are pure, as it says in, in verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything moral, any moral excellence, anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. And I guarantee that if we are struggling with a lot of these issues of, of not knowing how to deal with some of these things in our life, sin in our life, not knowing how to deal with all the, the worry and anxiety, if we would dwell on these things, we would see a change in the way we're interacting with the world around us. We would see a change in our attitude toward the world around us. Because if all we look at and see is the, the negative and the difficulty we become consumed by that. If that's what we dwell on is negati negativity and difficulty, we become consumed by it. 
We aren't supposed to be consumed by those things. We're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be living that out in our lives. Everything you think about is either glorifying to God or it's not. The things that we put into action in our life are, are visible to people, right? The things we do, the way we live, the way we talk, the way we act is visible to people. Our thoughts aren't. But God knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. And we should take every thought captive and make it submissive to obey God. Because the thing that you'll see is that the things you think will, before long, come out in your actions. The way that you act. The way that you care about others. If you are consuming things and thinking things that are, are, are negative and filled with worldly things, this will affect your walk with God. We must be constantly aware of what we're thinking, how it's influencing us, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The very last thing we see in verse 9 is to do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and, God, and the God of peace will be with you. The last thing he says is to obey. These things I've told you, obey them. The promise that we carry, the promise we remember is that, the God, that God is with us. So in conclusion, I want to remind you of the, of the advice that he's given us today, that Christians should live lives that are free from conflict with one another, filled with rejoicing and kindness, graciousness, not worrying but praying about every, everything and constantly focusing on the things that are good and of God rather than what is bad. If we live that life, that is the life that distinguishes us from the world. We are free from conflict with one another, filled with rejoicing and graciousness and kindness, not worrying, but praying about everything and constantly focusing on the good things of God rather than what is bad. That is the advice that Paul gives as he is closing this message. And we still have some verses to go, but as he's closing his, his words to them, what he's telling them to do, he tells them, do these things. And so as Christians today, 2,000 years later, we should take this advice. We should live it out, put it into our life. We shouldn't be in conflict with one another. We should be rejoicing always, rejoicing in the Lord, gracious to everyone that we meet, not worrying but praying to God, taking everything to Him, and constantly being aware of what we're thinking about and making sure that it is the pure, honorable, good, noble things of God. That is his advice for the Christian today. But the best advice that you can receive, if you don't know Christ this morning, the best advice I can give you is to turn and receive Christ today. At the beginning, I asked you to think about what advice you had been given that was memorable. That, if you are a Christian, that was the best advice you ever took. You are a sinner in need of God's salvation and found only through what Jesus has done. Repent and believe the best advice you ever took. And today, if you are sitting here this morning and you do not know Christ, you have never made the decision, you have never believed in what Christ has done, repented of your sins, and, and made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I would implore you today to do that, to lay all pride aside, to lay anything that would hold you back aside, and repent and believe this morning. As Becky comes and we have this time of invitation, I will be down front if you would like prayer, if you would like to go to the Lord in prayer together about anything that you may have, if you would like to talk about receiving Christ as your Savior, or following up in obedience and baptism, wherever you may be this morning, 
I will be down front for prayer and the altar will be open as well. But like he said at the end, whatever you've learned, whatever you've received, do it. Put it into practice. The God of peace will be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this time that we can come together, that we can look at what you have said to us, look at what advice that you give us. And God, I pray that as we follow you today, as we seek to be obedient to you today, that you would just reveal in our hearts the ways we need to be obedient to you, reveal where, where we are not following this advice that you've given us, and help us to put it into practice in our lives. God, I pray that you'd be with us and you would convict each of us to follow you more and that we would be a church that glorifies you in all we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.